Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. Uh, in previous segments of our history of Zionism in Israel, we've covered the 1950s both internally, what was happening inside Israel, and externally, especially in terms of Israel's beginning to develop a more professional army, taking a little bit more of an adversarial approach to its enemies, and finally culminating in the Sinai campaign of 1956. Now let's turn our attention, because we're really going at a kind of a 30,000 foot level here, very, very briefly. Let's look at the 1960s. And the 1960s really begin with an extraordinary announcement in May of 1960. There was a rumor that David Ben-Gurion, who is the Prime Minister of Israel, has a very important announcement to make. Nobody knows what it is, uh, but the Knesset building of that time, which is not the Knesset building of now, uh, is completely packed. And David Ben-Gurion enters the plenum of the Knesset, and he reads the following very brief statement. I have to inform the Knesset that a short time ago, one of the great Nazi war criminals, Adolf Eichmann, the man responsible together with the Nazi leaders for what they called the final solution, which is the annihilation of six million European Jews, was discovered by the Israel Security Services. Adolf Eichmann is already under arrest in Israel and will be placed on trial shortly under the terms of the law for the trial of Nazis and their collaborators. And with that, Ben-Gurion walked out of the Knesset. And it was silent in the Knesset, literally silent, as people began to internalize the enormity of the magnitude of that statement. Because think for a minute how many people in that Knesset plenum had lost parents or siblings, or spouses, or children, or extended family to the Nazi onslaught against European Jewry. An inordinate number of people in that room were either orphaned, or widowed, or whatever, because the Nazis had slaughtered their family. And now comes David Ben-Gurion, and he says, a mere 12 years after Israel was created, because this is May 1960, so it's exactly 12 years after Israel is created, David Ben-Gurion has announced that the existential condition of the Jewish people on planet Earth has changed, which is to say, you can no longer commit genocide against the Jewish people and then go live out your days in peace and quiet in the suburbs of Buenos Aires in Argentina. What David Ben-Gurion has essentially said is that the long arm of Israel, in some way, shape, manner, or form, will find you. The days when the Jews are victims simply waiting for you to do whatever it is that you would do, those days are long over. And it was literally, as I said, silent in the Knesset until spontaneously this Knesset broke out in thunderous applause. And remember the same thunderous applause that we'd heard in 1897 
when Theodor Herzl took the podium in Basel, Switzerland, and announced that those 207 delegates had gathered to build a Jewish home for the first time in 2,000 years. The Eichmann trial, which then proceeded, was the, really the first time that Israeli society heard the gripping details of what had happened in the Holocaust. Many of us now, talking together today, know those details much better than Israelis did now. We have the videos and we have the testimonies and we have all the recordings. That stuff wasn't available back in 1960. And in addition to that, many Israelis really didn't want to hear the story. They thought that those people who were quote-unquote led like sheep to the slaughter were the antithesis of the muscular, confident, bronzed, toned Zionist who was working the fields in the Galilee by day and guarding them at night. In other words, the Zionists in, Italy, in Israel or in Palestine back in the day were building a new kind of Jew. And these Jews who, as they said, of course, not us, but as they said, went like sheep to the slaughter, that was the exact opposite of what we wanted Jews to be. And these Zionists in Israel had really very little interest in hearing that story. There was another reason, of course, that they were very ambivalent about hearing that story for a long time, which was because they had been unable to do anything. They were impotent when it came to the Holocaust. They were in the Yeshuv. They were in the Yeshuv numbering hundreds of thousands. They were building the Haganah. They were building the Etzel. They were building the Lechi. But what were they really going to do against the Nazi onslaught? And therefore, even though in Palestine and in the Yeshuv they felt increasingly powerful and assertive, there was nothing that they could do about Europe, and that actually reminded them of their own weakness. So for all of those reasons, Israelis in the early years of the state just did not want to hear about the Holocaust. But the capture of Adolf Eichmann, who was then sneaked out of Argentina by Israeli security intelligence forces and brought to Israel and held trial in Jerusalem, uh, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, in which survivor after survivor after survivor was brought to testify about what she had endured, what he had endured, Israelis listened to the radio day in and day out. We know from the diaries of Israelis back then that they would schedule their work hours around the trial, that they would not go out. There were no, obviously, portable radios back then. They wanted to be home near a radio to hear this trial. And for the first time, the horror of the Nazi genocide really begins to sink into the Israeli consciousness. Yechiel Dinur, who was one of the people who gave testimony, actually fainted when he was giving testimony after he had called it a different planet. He said anybody who wasn't in Auschwitz couldn't begin to understand it. It had its own rules of nature. And describing what it was that he had endured in front of cameras and in front of microphones, he literally topples over from his seat onto the floor from the witness stand in an image that most Israelis, even to this day, have ingrained in their memory, if only from the internet, that they can never forget. And Aleph Eichmann is there during this whole trial. He is sitting in a glass cage guarded by Israeli guards to protect him, I guess, from the people there, but also to make sure he doesn't go anywhere. And this is the turning of the tables, because now those men and women who had tattoos of numbers on their arms and had not that many years before been wearing striped clothing, if you can call it that, given to them by Nazis, they are testifying in a sovereign Jewish state while the highest ranking Nazi official then known to be alive is sitting in a cage waiting to be judged. It changed everything about the place of the Holocaust in Israeli life. 
What's also very interesting about the Eichmann trial, of course, about which entire books have been written because it's an exceedingly complicated and long trial, what's fascinating about the Eichmann trial is that while rank-and-file American Jews were not celebratory, but deeply satisfied when they also heard that Ben-Gurion had announced the capture of Eichmann, America's, American Judaism's leadership was actually infuriated. I know that it's hard to imagine that today, but we have to just kind of wrap our heads around it. The leadership of American Jewish life in 1960 were infuriated that Israel had captured Eichmann. And here was their question. How many Israelis did Adolf Eichmann kill? Zero. There was no Israel when the Holocaust was going on. Adolf Eichmann killed Jews, not Israelis, and many other people, of course, beyond Jews. But as far as we're concerned, they were saying he killed Jews not Israelis. So who gave you, Israel, the right to go represent all of world Jewry and go take Eichmann as if you speak for world Jewry? It's part of that ongoing tug of war that we've seen a few times. We saw it with Jacob Blaustein a few segments ago. When David Ben-Gurion hears of that reaction of American Jewish leaders, he is enraged, not just annoyed, but enraged. And at the Zionist Congress at the end of 1960, he actually says, you know what? Who cares about American Jews? They are going to disappear in a sea of assimilation anyway. It's just a shameful group of people who don't know how to stand up for themselves. And I make a point of mentioning this now, not because Ben-Gurion spoke wisely, but because I want us to understand that the lack of patience, American Jews with Israel and Israelis with American Jews, is not a new thing. It's not a result of the occupation. It's not a result of the conflict with the, with the Palestinians. In 1960, there is no occupation. In 1960, Israel does not have the West Bank. In 1960, there is no Palestinian issue. And yet, American Jews and Israelis are already at each other's throats. In this particular instance, because of the question, who says you, Israelis, actually speak for American Jews? Those are the highlights of the Eichmann trial. He is, of course, eventually convicted and Israel hangs him. And then he is actually cremated and his ashes are spilled at sea outside Israeli territorial waters uh, because Israel does not want him buried anywhere so that his burial place could become a kind of a place to go uh, for Nazis or neo-Nazis or anything of the sort. In 1953 already, Yad Vashem had been created, so Israel is beginning already to come in a scholarly way to terms with the Holocaust. And more and more, the Holocaust will become part of Israel's national curriculum. And today, most Israeli high school students actually go and visit Poland. Not all, but the vast majority of Israeli high school students go and visit Poland. And in the better schools, they learn first about what European Jewish life was before it was destroyed, uh, and then they go and see what actually happened. One of the very sad dimensions of the Holocaust in Israeli life today, and this is something that is actually, I think, shameful, and I think many Israelis agree with me, is that a terribly high percentage of Holocaust survivors, who are now, of course, all very, very old, live in terrible poverty. Uh, there are not that many of them left in Israel that it would cost Israel so much money to make sure that they could all afford food and that they could all afford their medicines but it's one of those social issues that in Israel keeps falling between the cracks and what many people, myself included, believe is really a mark of shame on Israel and our society to this day. 
Israelis now come to understand, though, what genocide really is. If they had rumors and understanding in a vague way about the Second World War before, now, as a result of the Eichmann trial, they understand in bitter, horrifying detail what genocide looks like. And because of that, and because of what's going on on the borders in all of Israel's directions in the north with Lebanon and the south with Egypt and Gaza and on the east with Jordan and the porousness of the borders and this conflict that is never going to end and the Arabs coming back and talking about a second round, David Ben-Gurion comes to the very unhappy conclusion that the conflict with the, with the Arabs is not going to end at any time in the near future. And he's also a very, very smart guy, and he comes to the conclusion that while the West right now is on Israel's side, there's no reason to assume that the West will always remain on Israel's side. That's pretty prophetic. And he decides in the early 1960s uh, that Israel needs to become a nuclear power, that the only way that Israel can really defend itself is for its enemies to understand that it will have a second strike capability, and it will never again be the case that the Jews will go down with a whimper. If Israel were to, ha were to go down, Ben-Gurion wants Israel to be able to say, we have nuclear weapons and we're not the only ones who are going to go down. By, the 19, by 1960, uh, the United States finds out that France, which was then Israel's major military ally, uh, is helping Israel build a nuclear reactor. But in 1961, John F. Kennedy uh, signs a nuclear non-proliferation non agreement. And so, therefore, the fact that Israel, of which he's basically supportive, not enthusiastically, but basically supportive, is a country that is violating this non-proliferation idea, um, is really very problematic. And Kennedy begins to send people to Israel to inspect Dimona, which is where this reactor is supposedly being built. And Israel really pulls the wool over their eyes. They build fake control panels and fake rooms where they're supposedly monitoring all kinds of machinery. Uh, they spread pigeon dung all sorts of areas so it looks like nobody's been in these buildings forever. Uh, and the United States gets fooled. Whether or not the United States kind of knew it was getting fooled is not entirely clear. Uh, but Israel is going ahead and moving forward with France and building this nuclear reactor. The United States agrees not to understand that Israel's doing it. Um, and by 1969, when Golda Meir is Prime Minister and Richard Nixon is already the President of the United States, uh, Golda reaches a basic agreement with Nixon, which is that the United States knows that Israel is pursuing a nuclear weapon. The agreement is that the United States will not stop Israel from pursuing a nuclear weapon, and Israel at the same time will not say that it has the weapon. So the Non-Proliferation Treaty can be said to still be in effect, but Israel can move ahead and get the weapon. And the upshot of this whole episode, of course, is that today uh, Israel is a nuclear power. Israel has nuclear weapons in a whole array of places. It does not commonly admit that, but it's very well known that it has them, including on other things, on submarines. So that even if Israel were to be taken out by an immediate strike, uh, the people on those submarines will be able to figure out where that strike came from and will do what needs to be done to make it clear that this was the time that the Jews were not going to go down quietly. Hopefully that will never happen. But that again, just like 1956, changes Israel's standing in the Middle East. Uh, the fact that Israel is now a nuclear power changes everything as well. Something else happens in the 1960s that we need to look at quickly, which is the birth of the Palestinian Liberation Organization or the PLO. 
And I want to mention the PLO very, very briefly. It's formed essentially in 1964. Uh, it's formed again in 64, which is before 1967, before the Six Day War, before there's an occupation, before there is a conflict with the Palestinians. And what does Ahmad Shukeri, who will eventually become the PLO's chairman, say about that second round that they're getting ready for? He says, quote, in the event of a conflagration, no Jews whatsoever will survive, period. In other words, the PLO is not about restoring lands to the Palestinians because Israel doesn't have any lands of the Palestinians. The PLO is explicit that its purpose is to destroy the state of Israel, to make sure that there is no Jewish entity anywhere between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and that in the process, no Jews, said Shukeri, will be left alive. Where are we today, almost 60 years after that? Well, Ismail Haniya, who was the prime minister of Hamas, or Gaza, uh, said a few years ago, we are going to liberate Palestine in its entirety from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. Hezbollah, till this very day, which is the terrorist organization in Lebanon, says that it's about eliminating Israel. Hamas says it's about liberating Israel. And one of the things that all of us who in American conversations need to remember is that very few people on the American side of the ocean, when they talk about Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, talk about that. Very few people want to recognize or probably don't even know that leading Palestinian organizations to this very day say that it is not about the creation of a Palestinian state. It's about the creation of a Palestinian state, perhaps, but absolutely the destruction of the Jewish state. Uh, Yasser Arafat, who will eventually head the PLO and will, of course, eventually get into negotiations with Israel in Oslo, and we'll talk about all of that, will say in English that he's in allowing the Jewish state to continue to exist, but he will never say in Arabic to his own people that it's come time to recognize the Jewish state. And that's really kind of what leaves us where we are, unfortunately, uh, at the beginning or in the, at the end of the first quarter, more or less, of the 21st century. So what's happened that we've talked about briefly in the 1960s? Israelis, because of the Eichmann trial, have had a chance to see up close and up front the horrors and the grisly details of what the Nazis did, and so they have a much deeper understanding of what the hatred of the Jew can do and what the world will let happen. Don't forget that part of what they learned was that not one single American bomb was dropped on a single track to a single concentration camp. All you had to do was bomb the tracks to the camps and those trains carrying thousands and ultimately millions of Jews would not have reached their, their, their destinations. But Israelis find out gradually that not a single bomb gets dropped on a single tra track to a single camp. Israelis begin to understand that at the end of the day, the world doesn't care all that very much, which is what leads to the second major development, which is that Israel becomes a nuclear power. And the third development is that the PLO is created in 1964. It declares itself committed to Israel's destruction. And where that would have gone were it not for the 1967 war is very difficult to say, but the Middle East is about to be changed dramatically by the 1967 Six-Day War, which is what we're going to look at in our next segment.
Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.